This is Under Review, a podcast about rethinking humanities graduate education, a collaboration of the University of California Humanities Research Institute and the University of Florida Center for the Humanities and the Public Sphere. I'm June Key, a comparative literature PhD student at the University of California, Irvine. I'm Lauren Burrell-Cox, an English PhD student at the University of Florida. We believe that discussions of career diversity should not only consider careers beyond the university, but also think through structural problems within the university. Each episode, we speak with experts about issues surrounding prestige, labor, contingency, and diverse postdoctoral pathways. It's time to put graduate education under under review. In this episode, we speak with Dr. Mimi Cook, a writer, scholar, mental health advocate, and adjunct lecturer in disability studies at Georgetown University. We cover her advocacy for adjunct professors, mental health issues in grad school, the silencing of emotions for the sake of professionalism, and what we can do to create more spaces for care in the university. We know that adjunct positions are often part-time, temporary, poorly paid, and without job security. But how does it feel? In this segment, we hear anonymous testimonies from adjunct faculty members about their experiences, excerpted from the 2019 Contingent Faculty Plenary of the Association for Asian American Studies. Today, I attended an event for graduating seniors on campus. There were the typical uplifting, you can do anything you want, and don't let anything stop you from reaching your dreams type of encouraging statements. As someone who once dreamed of having a tenure-track job and has given that up, I now find these types of statements sad. Just when I'm becoming okay with my situation and not wanting a tenure-track job anymore, I hear something like this, and it makes me wonder if I've given up too soon and just didn't try hard enough. I feel like I am drowning and there is no end in sight. I feel my chest tightening and shortness of breath when I stop and think about how much longer this will last. I am only in my first year as an adjunct, so my experience is limited. But even a year of demanding work hours alongside uncertainty and limited resources has been challenging. I feel invisible sometimes, even though I publish, teach, and attend conferences. I feel embarrassed that I couldn't even get a tenure-track job, even if I've had other accomplishments in my career. I never know how other academics will treat me. Once I got out of adjuncting, I realized how abusive that life was, how it was structured to make me feel like a failure constantly. It took me three years to rebuild my professional self-esteem, and with a lot of support from mentors and friends inside and outside, At this point, I'm kind of breaking up with academia because I just cannot do this anymore. I'm still open to a friends with benefits kind of situation. (laughs) A meditation on being an adjunct professor. I contracted many ailments while other in academia. PTSD, migraines, severe vertigo, autoimmune disorders, imposter syndrome, panic attacks, insomnia. All those ailments paled in comparison to the abuse in the form of the push and pull. 
that resulted in a simultaneous parading of my body while I was subtly microaggressively silenced, undermined, discounted, not enough. I died an academic death from a thousand cuts that led to a layoff, faculty, not faculty, unprotected or val validated by tenure track. I was laid off. Laid off, I was erased. I was removed. I was expelled. I was exiled. As, there, as the higher-ups did so, they claimed, quote, this layoff is not a reflection of your work, end quote. I left higher ed with a severe case of PTSD. And a case of academic bipolarity in which diversity is valued, but I am erased. If it were not for the hundreds of former students who bemoaned out loud my academic death and call me auntie professor, I'd be completely undone. So I live on to heal in exile, away from academia, to reconcile myself with my worth and work. And now, here's our interview with Dr. Mimi Cook. Hi, Mimi. Thanks for coming on to Under Review. So I'm a big fan of your work. I actually attended a workshop at UCI a few years ago that was kind of organized um, around the mental health issue you curated, Open an Emergency and the Tarot Card Deck. And it was like beautiful and really inspiring to see. So I, I have been a longtime fan of your work. <laughs> but um, on your website, you know, you kind of describe yourself as a writer, scholar, teacher, adjunct lecturer. In addition to those positions, you're also a contingent faculty rep for uh, the Association of Asian American Studies and uh, managing director for the Asian American Literary Review. So you do wear many hats. Um, we were wondering if you could just talk a little bit about um, what you do in each of these positions. Sure. Thank you so much for having me. It was a it was a lovely invitation to receive, and and amazing to hear that you are uh, in attendance in the before times. I'm assuming yes. at UCI when it was normal to be places <laughs> with other people. Um, yeah, I I wear a lot of hats. Uh, I think too many sometimes, <laughs> but I think that's also the nature of trying to of trying to do hybrid work. You end up having to do a lot of different things that you didn't expect you have to do um, in order to kind of bridge genres, bridge fields, bridge community spaces, bridge institutions um, requires to you to be a, a kind of nimbleness that I didn't know I would need and, and have been able to luckily develop over the last few years. Um, and I'm happy to talk about any of those particular hats that you're interested in. Yeah, so maybe you could start by sharing a little bit about your research. Sure. Uh, I specialize in mental health, Asian American mental health in particular, um, though I do not approach it in the usual ways uh, that are dominated by psychology and psychiatry um, and, and clinical work. So my approaches to mental health come out of more of a disability studies and ethnic studies background that wants to locate mental health within social structures and within uh, structural violence in particular, so that mental health isn't simply a uh, individual pathology to be cured, but born of conditions of social violence that we are all embedded in, in, in all different kinds of ways. So I like to say that we are all, we are all unwell, we are all differentially unwell, meaning that we're all unwell depending on our relationships to structures of unwellness, awful shit happening in our lives. 
right? Everybody has awful shit happening in their lives at some point. And I really want to normalize that uh, as as human experience so that it's not stigmatized when things feel hard. Um, and so, so much of my work is about simply the destigmatizing of when things feel hard. Uh, and I do that through a little bit of traditional scholarship, but not really because I find that boring. Uh, I do it more through a kind of hybrid critical and creative work. Um, another way of saying maybe like book arts. There's lots of weird words I could use to describe what I do. Uh, but as you were mentioning tarot cards, so I make tarot cards, which is neither scholarly or really traditional tarot in any way. Um, I, I try to think formally about my work, like how do I create things in new ways, um, new forms? How do I engage existing forms? How do I question existing forms so that we can create new kinds of knowledges, new kinds of experiences? So, yeah, mental health seems to be a really important part of all the work that you do. And I was reading on your website that you're developing a new book project on mental health in the university. So would you mind giving us a little bit of a preview about that? Sure. I actually just finished drafting it like like last week. Congrats. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> uh, I never thought I would write a book, an academic book. I, I, we, we jokingly call open emergency a box. Right, because it literally is a box with stuff in it. It includes something that may look like a book, but also includes a pamphlet, tarot cards. Um, so an academic book was not something I was interested in doing before, especially because I'm an adjunct and I'm not tenure tracked and I have no interest in being tenure tracked. So I didn't have to write a tenure book like everybody in the humanities has to do. So the form of the academic tenure book was not one that I needed to do, nor was I interested in doing work that way. Um, but... After making Open Emergency and seeing its life in the world and getting to travel around and meet people and talk about mental health, especially students across the country, um, I felt like I needed to sit more with what unwellness looks and feels like in, uh, in deeper ways on my own. Um, engaging the work that I've been doing, but like what, what I've learned basically from listening to other people and, and engaging, especially the university, um, which is the space that, you know, I mostly inhabit, even as I inhabit it in weird ways. And so I identify strongly as a teacher, I identify strongly um, as a scholar, even as I don't do traditional scholarship. And so I wanted to think about students, academics, um, our relationship to unwellness and situated within the university. So, so then that was how the project was sort of born. Um, how do we track unwellness across our communities? Where does that unwellness lie? And what are the structures that contribute to it, right? And for students who have been my kind of main community of accountability, uh, it's so clearly the university. <laughs> the university makes them unwell. Right. And so it's not that students happen to be unwell in the university and happen to need counseling center services, um, because that's that's how the universities tend to approach student mental health. Right. It tends to be, OK, so students, there are some you know rates of suicidal ideation. Some students need support. They should go to the counseling center. How do we get more students to go to the counseling center? That is always the question that universities are asking and even counseling centers ask at universities. That's what I've encountered. Um, but it's the wrong question because one, counseling centers cannot see every student. It's not physically possible. And then they currently, from what I've seen across the country, can't even really serve the students that 
do come to them. There's like long wait lists. Students are limited to only like a certain number of sessions and get referred out. Or they go in and they like see different practitioners every time and this is not consistent care. Or there's also obviously the issue of like comp cultural competency, right? Does your therapist actually understand what your community experiences and your you know particular intersections of identities? So getting more students to go to the counseling center is one way of addressing mental health, but not really effectively. So um, I've wanted to think about the university as something that students are embedded in and experience unwellness in, not simply by coincidence, but by the structures that exist in the university. So how does the university contribute to their unwellness? Well, it's through uh, ideas about meritocracy, pressures around excellence, right? Um, in the individualization of mental health and mental illness actually is part of what makes them unwell, thinking it's their fault, it's just them, uh, an individual problem with an individual solution. So the book is tracking this unwellness across student spaces, across the classroom, uh, across academia in terms of professors, <laughs> how we're unwell as well in, in the university um, and the forces that shape our experience. That's really fascinating. So I, I guess since our podcast is targeted mainly towards grad students, did you see any mm -hmm. kind of dis differences between grad students and undergrads and their experiences I'm, of being unwell? I mean, graduate graduate school is unwell. Like I feel like gra graduate school is its own <laughs> fucked up world, <laughs> especially in the humanities. So yes, yeah, it looks sure. it does look very different in graduate school. Um, than among undergrads, and I can definitely talk more about the unwellness there. But I like like people can't see us right now, but y'all are laughing when I'm talking about under, you know graduate school being awful um, because it's everybody knows this, right? It's fucking awful, yeah, it but is. we accept it. Why do we accept it? Why does it have to be awful? Why do we think that uh, to be academics, to be rigorous, to um, be professional has to look and feel the way that it does. Why does care not comprise part of the educational experience from undergrad, you know, to graduate school and then to being an academic professionally as well? So I really want to think about how do we re-understand education as a project of care and how it would look very different if we start there, right? If we start with the idea that everybody deserves care, everybody needs care, there's nothing wrong with needing care, nothing is wrong with you if you need care because all humans need care. And if we recognize that, how different would graduate education be? And, and so that sort of answers your question in a backwards way. I mean, some of the unwellness I see in graduate education is really the kind of, I mean, the individualization of mental unwellness, I think, is even more stark in graduate school because this is where you're supposed to, like, really prove that you belong and prove that you're cut out for stuff. And so failing, the stakes are really high for failing and not doing things correctly or at the supposed standards you're supposed to be doing, right? And so I think ideas of meritocracy um, are accentuated in the graduate school. I mean, they're obviously all through education, but in graduate school, when we're supposed to be like the cream of the crop and doing the hardest work possible and then becoming, you know, intellectuals and becoming professional academics, um, the stakes get higher and higher and the pressures increase 
and in the individualization, I think, increases as well. Does that make sense? Does that help at all? Yeah, yeah. No, thank, thank you so much for those wise words. Grad school is a super highly competitive environment. Like you were saying, it uh, presumes itself to be a meritocracy. And I think it ends up just making people feel more isolated. No, yeah, it, it's it's not a meritocracy. One, it's like totally fucking luck and privilege, right, to even get into grad school. And then the ways that we survive grad school, again, a combination of luck and privilege, right, to get the fellowships, to get the um, positions, to get the right connections, to not be sexually harassed or to be sexually harassed, right? Um, that's also one element I think that's a huge part of the unwellness of graduate school is the, and I haven't thought this uh, through a lot, but it's it's definitely at the forefront of my mind um, currently because of things that have been happening right at different universities coming out. Is the way that graduate education is seems to enable forms of abuse because of this mentor-mentee hierarchy relationship that um, feels quite actually medieval, <laughs> uh, but if we empower mentors. So absolutely, right, to have such control over mentees' lives um, with no accountability, right, and not approaching it as a project of care, but one of like apprenticeship, which is not mutually exclusive with care, but the way, but it is also not inherent, right? So if you approach apprenticeship as one of like just reproducing yourself, like in this narcissistic way, um, or gatekeeping, right, those are other ways you can approach apprenticeship, then it's just like totally fertile ground for abuse. And so I feel like that is a huge part of the unwellness that that then um, shows up differentially for different kinds of identities and, and positionalities, right? For students of color, for women students, queer students, uh, trans students, like those bear down on them even more difficultly. Yeah, I think uh, in my program, we've only just started to kind of have this discussion about what is mentorship and how can it change and what is like actually good mentorship and like pretty much just this last week I feel like the subject has been coming up so Mm. very uh, interesting that you're bringing it up so since our podcast is kind of about graduate school we were wondering what was it that you envisioned your like career trajectory being when you were in graduate school because I think we all kind of come in and think that it's going to be one way and then by the time you make it there you've gone through so many changes of what it actually looks like right I like that you think it's gonna be one way and then it's really not it's really another way (laughs) Um, I feel like my beginnings of graduate school may be pretty common or or commonly shared in that like I went into it knowing nothing about academia so I went into graduate school thinking I just I wanted to teach right I loved my undergrad experience I was really inspired by my professors Um, I was good at school so why not just keep doing it and then I wanted to create classrooms that were inspiring that I, in the same way that I got to experience. Um, I had no idea what academia actually was in terms of like research and, and careers and tenure. I didn't know what tenure was. So I entered grad school pretty naively, um, was immediately overwhelmed because I went straight from undergrad into a program that had many students, had some that were like me, but many more who already had master's degrees, right? had already been in grad school for a few years. Um, so imposter syndrome reared its head right very early on. I definitely did not feel like I belonged. I was also one of the few 
students of color. Of course, this is like a, a story everybody knows, right? I was one of the few students of color in my program, um, one of like maybe two women of color. Uh, and so, um, at least in my cohort. And so that began the process of disillusionment, right? Where I thought grad school was going to be this amazing kind of space to do really um, generative thinking, right? And, and asking amazing questions. And, and, and in some ways it was that, but it was so constrained by um, institutional policies and certain kinds of racist expectations in my program, the personalities of faculty. I had no idea how much that would influence things. Who is chair and who is not chair and who becomes chair? Like all of that I didn't understand about how, how academic programs worked. So I started like figuring that out. Still wanted to be an academic, um, still wanted to teach. And I found that over the years that I was in grad school, I was in grad school for a while, over the years, I really became groomed in the way that I think many people are to want to become a top-notch researcher, right? I went in wanting to teach and towards the middle to end, the goal was to get that like prestigious R1 tenure track job. Right? That is the only marker of success. So everything you do has to be towards that goal. The dissertation you write, whether you publish your chapters or not, right? the professionalization that you do, all of that is to go on the job market and get that kind of job. And I didn't even realize that was happening as it was happening to me. right? But it became very clear that was the message from everywhere, that that is what, me- what it means to be a successful academic. Uh, fast forward to my last few years in grad school, and I watched... A bunch of mentors, women of color, not get tenure (laughs) across my field. And I was like, oh, my God, you can do everything right and still get fired. Right. And that that disillusionment really rocked how I understood what it means to be an academic. Like if I do all these things, something to do and I could still not have a job, then why should I do it? And I took a like wild left turn as I was finishing my dissertation and committed to actually never, never doing it. I watched what people had to sacrifice to get that tenure track job and keep that tenure track job and then still <laughs> lose that tenure track job. And I said, that's not for me. Like, I didn't want to have to move all over the country. I could not chase um, jobs. I could not move every year like some people do, right? I couldn't be on the market over and over and over again. I couldn't... Um, apply to 30 jobs a year that just wasn't within my capacity. And I, my family is in the DC metro area and I was pretty sure I wanted to go back to my family and be near them. Um, So that basically said I couldn't go on the market. Right. And I made that decision pretty early on. And it's actually very freeing once I made that decision that I didn't have to enter that rat race of the market. And we can talk more about the market if you want. Um, I immediately decided that I wanted to do academia on my own terms. And then I spent the next few years trying to figure out what that meant. Did it mean teaching? Did it mean adjuncting? Did it mean, you know, doing uh, publishing anyway? And then eventually what you find is, you know, open emergency. It meant that. Uh, But it took me many years to figure that out. How did you navigate the transition then from your decision to kind of what everyone starts out with being like, I want the tenure track job and that's what I'm going to do. And then having this 
transition to being like, no, that's not what I want. Because I think there are a lot of stories of people meeting resistance when they tell their mentors in their program and say like, I don't think I want that anymore. And I might want something different. So we were wondering what that was like for you. That's a great point that you make. Yes, tons of resistance from mentors. Um, Because often mentors are older, who've been established in academia, they're senior scholars, they have they when they got their jobs, the market was very different, right? Academia looked very different. Um, And so it makes sense that they have an investment in continuing the shape of academia that they're experiencing. And that they have not questioned what success means and look can look like have not been been able to expand their ideas around that. And so I mean, it makes sense. It's still fucking awful, but it makes sense so that they're not able to do that. But it's awful when you're trying to say, I don't want to do this. And then they make you feel like a failure, right? They double down on that failure feeling because they're like, well, you, you should try, right? Some of the really innocuous, seemingly innocuous advice drives me fucking wild. Like, um, uh, you should keep trying that one. Just keep trying. Or you even like the nice statement of like you can do it no you're, you're going to be totally fine you can do it for me that that tells you that it's again individual effort right and that you're the one of the smart ones of course you're going to make it and that everyone else who didn't make it is somehow like not smart right it just has all of that subtext even in what seems to be reassurance and so I understand a lot of grad students don't want to tell their committees that they have other kinds of plans because they won't be supported also, their committees don't know how to support them looking in different areas. I mean, our academics are very, very specialized at the very tiny thing that they do, right? And not the rest of the world <laughs> and life. Uh, even, even as they sit on their thrones and think that they're experts on a lot of things, they're really not. They're really not positioned to tell graduate students um, all the life advice that they seem to think that they should be telling graduate students. So I get it. And I uh, faced a little bit of that myself, some resistance. Um, I had a really, really supportive committee that was like, you do you. But there was like a little bit of eyebrow raising about that, right? But th- but it wasn't direct resistance. It was just like, I don't know what that means when you say, you know, for you to do you, I want to support you, but I don't know what that looks like. And I still think you could be a good academic. Like there's still that that subtext in the background. Um I think it also helps that in terms of my personality, I'm just also like, I I struggle with being told what to do. I'm not a good listener in that way. <laughs> so the more someone tells me what to do, the more I'm like, I'm not doing it. Um, so I think my committee also realized that, that they could not like really tell me what to do. Um, so I don't know what advice I can, can call from what I just said to graduate students <laughs> about it. Um, but if I had graduate students who I was mentoring, I would want them to explore everything besides academia, right? To think about how their education can shape the things that they want to do, can contribute to what they want to do, and not how to fit in the trajectory of academia, right? So the work for me would be to mentor um, a more expansive understanding of how to apply their skills, but also a more expansive way of dreaming. What is the contribution you want to make? What are the interventions you want to make? What is the stuff you want to create? How do we do that? And how can what we do here in grad school help you do that? Like that's a totally different way of thinking about 
grad school, right? But I want to empower students to feel like that is how they should be thinking about their education and not feel like failures if they are, you know, not doing what their advisors think they should do. So I guess that's my message. Like, I give you permission, right, to say, fuck academia and do what you want. And and you are still a success. <laughs> that's that's a really great. Thank you for that message. <laughs> Everything you said was like so relatable. And um you know, I do I do think as you were talking that there are spaces that are affiliated with academia where these conversations can be had. You know, mm. for instance, at humanities centers where Lauren and I work or institutes. Um, and I know you are also involved in uh, the Association of Asian American Studies. You're their contingent faculty rep. Um, so if you could talk a little bit more about that role and what you do um, for AAAS there. Yeah, yeah. So this is one way that I kind of keep a foot in academia um, and sort of to kind of continue answering uh, the, the question about like graduates making that transition. So I started teaching in Asian American studies um, when I once I finished my dissertation um, as an adjunct. Uh, and this was at University of Maryland, where I no longer teach at because they I got pushed out by tenured colleagues. So that's a whole other fucking story. <laughs> um but I was an adjunct there and I was teaching and that's when I started doing open emergency as well. And so I had this teaching position where I got to work with um, Asian American students, teaching Asian American studies, thinking about mental health in new ways, thinking about Asian American mental health. Uh, my partner is the co-founder and co-director of the Asian American Literary Review, which is the journal that uh, published open emergency. So, and that's where I work with him now. We collaborate there now. And so I had this, foundation and these outlets for thinking creatively about how to do my work. But I always also consider myself a scholar in Asian American studies. Um, and so my way of kind of staying in Asian American studies, even as I didn't have a tenure track job, was to stay connected in AAAS, the Association for Asian American Studies. So I would go to the conference every year, I would attend sessions, create sessions, um, continue building those relationships with, you know, colleagues and even mentors and being like unapologetic about it, right? Like I'm building these relationships and I'm not doing it because I want a tenure track job or I need to network for that, right? I'm doing it because I'm committed to the field and want to do this inquiry with y'all. I'm just doing it in a very different way. And I think it was helpful to approach it that way. It allowed me to kind of be in that space in a way that didn't feel so triggering <laughs> and so scary when you're always thinking about like job market and how to get a job and how to like survive. Um, so actually the, the story about me getting pushed out of Maryland, I won't go into details, but it's relevant here is because, uh, I was an adjunct there and I got pushed out by tenured colleagues, um, during kind of change of directorialship for lots of reasons. Um, most of which I will call tenured fragility. Uh, and that really made me understand deeply the precarity of being an adjunct and not just precarity in terms of the university, but the really fucked up relationship between tenured and non-tenured faculty. Like we can pretend we're all colleagues, right? And I was thinking that that's why I was at AAAS, you know, doing my thing, um, making my claims about the field. At the end of the day, though, it's a tenured colleague who hires and fires me, right? Structurally. And so I really had to think about 
what does this mean for us as a field in Asian American studies and then larger in academia to have this kind of two-tiered system um, of labor exploitation in the university that is only getting worse and increasing, right? We, we talk about the adjunctification of the university. Uh, adjuncts make up the majority of the people teaching you know, classes at almost every university, and it just gets more and more and more. So as people, you know, tenure positions don't get renewed or as tenure is getting dismantled at some places, right? So what does it mean for our field if precarity is what structures how we do our work? And if that precarity is exacerbated or exploited by other people in our field, right? Because the tenured folk do their research, get their sabbaticals, write their second books based on the exploited labor of the non-tenured colleagues who are teaching their classes for them for much lower wages, right? And that dynamic, I think people are really uncomfortable looking at and thinking about because they want to pretend that we're all colleagues. And so that made me want to make structural change. And that's why I ran for um, the position of contingent faculty rep, rep, rep for the board of Asian American studies um, as its inaugural person in that position, because they had only just made that, they had just only just created that position. It had not existed before to have a, an adjunct faculty rep because they were starting to realize that they needed to have that. Um, and I'm no longer the rep now, I rotated off um, and so there's a new one. It's a three-year term. Um, but I'm happy to talk more about like what it looks like to try to make that kind of change at that that level. Yeah, when you were speaking just now, um, you know, about how the comfort of one class of faculty relies on the exploitation of the yes. other, like that is such a really interesting dynamic because usually you just think of them as like separate tracks or usually that's how the right. academy construes them. Um, and I guess it just made me think about this, like, I, I don't know if you read this short story, The Ones Who Walk Away from Omelas by Ursula um, Le Guin. No, I haven't but read that one. <laughs> it's basically like a, about a utopian society where everybody is happy and free and prosperous, but this beautiful utopian society depends on the exploitation and suffering of this one small child that's locked up yeah. in a basement and out of sight. Most people choose to stay in that society, but there's like a very small contingent who choose to walk away towards something else. Who knows where they're going? Nobody knows I, they don't even know where they're going, but they realize that they cannot be complicit in this structure anymore. So anyways, I just wanted to <laughs> throw that in there um, just because that, that story really resonated with what you yeah. were saying. Yeah, I, I would love if there are tenured faculty who would walk away and not want to be complicit anymore uh, in the exploitation of non-tenured faculty. And, and actually, I've explored with allies what that might look like. Right. And that, so that's also part of my work in terms of advocacy in the academy, is to lift up the voices of adjuncts so that people will actually listen and, and hear what it's like to be an adjunct, but then also hear what um, possible ways of addressing that exploitation and that exploitative relationship might be. And, and then brainstorming with people who want to not be complicit anymore and who want to ally themselves. And I actually will throw graduate students in that mix too, because so many graduate students are also adjuncts, right? And so, I mean, graduate student life is like a kind of adjunctification of its own 
universities could not function without exploiting graduate students as their teaching assistants and research assistants, right? The, the whole system would fucking fall apart because so that is the cheapest labor possible to get <laughs> that they can have. They can basically just have tuition remission for graduate students and then pay them a tiny, tiny, tiny wage to teach so many students. And so I consider graduate students, even while in grad school, part of the adjunct class. And then definitely after grad school, so many join the adjunct class because there's not enough tenure track jobs. So I like <laughs> went to on the internet and dug up, you know, a SoundCloud recording of one of the uh, workshops you facilitated for the AAAS. And it was in 2019. Um, and you kind of asked people to share anonymously how it feels to be what you you, you call a second class faculty member. Um, and how does it feel to do everything right and still fail? And I was just really struck by the way that you framed the question. Like, why do you feel like you focus on emotions so much? Because they're mm. not really talked about in academic spaces. Um, normally, we don't really talk about how we feel. We talk more about what we think, right? Right, right. As if those two things aren't related. Yes, we love to bifurcate those two things, right? Um, thank you for bringing up that session that I organized at uh, the 2019 AAAS. So that was a, pl a presidential plenary that I asked for, um, that I organized in order to lift up adjunct voices. And the question that you um, quoted in terms of how I solicited tes testimonies from adjuncts, um, was around, yes, the question of feeling. And, and that was my first kind of way of intervening because I felt like tenured faculty did not know how it feels, right? They may be able to look at like the pay differences and kind of think about like some of these, you know, uh, unjust or like unfair, you know, uh, systems of payment and contracts and that kind of nitty gritty but they do not know what it feels like to teach and work with other people who, and I'm going to quote a friend, Jen Hayashida, who's also a contingent faculty who got uh, pushed out of her program, what it's like to work with people who do not care if you live or die. And when Jen said that to me, this is in actually in 2018, when she said that to me, I was like, okay, they need to know. So they need to know what it feels like because that what it feels like is the texture of life, right? We can say what we think all we want, but unwellness is feeling. Unwellness is thinking too. We think all kinds of unwell things. We buy into all kinds of unwell discourses, right? And stories we tell about ourselves, but we also feel. Uh, and so when I'm looking at mental health and looking at unwellness, so much of it is in how we feel about things, how we feel about the stories that are told about us, how we embody those stories. And so I wanted to bring feeling to the fore here because I thought that would be a different way of connecting and a different way of engaging um, commitments to social justice, which is what I was trying to kind of trigger among the, the tenured um, portion of AAAS. I also just wanted to lift up, as in a tradition of, you know, racial justice, lift up like the most marginalized voices, right? Because they're the ones who know what's up and they're the ones that may have answers, like we should listen to them. Um, the irony, though, is that every single person who submitted a testimony that I shared at that plenary, I read out loud and had people in the audience read out loud, 
was not able to attend the fucking conference because they couldn't afford it because they're adjuncts. Wow. That's so (laughs) ironic. So their voices could only be heard by me being a proxy because I was a board member and because I was able to ask for this plenary and then commit myself to bringing their voices in, right? Like, look at all the steps and the structural things that had to be put in place for them to even be heard for a, a blip for a second at this session because their bodies couldn't be there. So yeah, that's why feeling matters, right? We have to feel the injust- the injustice of all of that. Right. So as we've been talking about how emotions really aren't foregrounded in academia, what are the ways that you think we can create spaces to have that in academia? That's a great question. Yes. I think we're really afraid of feeling. We think, I have to think about this more, but I think we think it means we're not being rigorous. Again, this is like the whole excellence and meritocracy thing, right? We're not good scholars if we have feelings or express feelings, Um because apparently scholarship must be like, you know, reason, rationality, all of those things, logic. And feeling is somehow a baser experience, maybe something that's in the body in a way that is also feminized, right? I like to say I create spaces of feeling in my work. And so when I give talks, when I organize sessions at conferences, uh, I mean, I don't do the, you know, the panel the regular panel at a conference where everyone reads, especially in the humanities where we fucking read from a paper, right? Everybody's holding their paper and reading for just 20 minutes straight. Who can fucking listen to that? Right. But that's what we do in the humanities. Um, even with amazing ideas, I cannot listen to that. I just, I can't like as in terms of an access need of my own, I just cannot listen to academic writing with nothing in front of my eyes and no way of engaging my body for 90 minutes. I don't really think anybody can, but we seem to force ourselves to do that because of convention, because we think that's professional, I guess, again, and excellent. Um, So when I organize even academic panels or sessions, uh, I organize spaces that I try to imbue with feeling and give permission for people who attend to feel. So for instance, um, I am organizing a session this year at this year's AAAS called... uh, how to not have your shit together. Um, there's, there's a subtitle too, but the, basically the subtitle is about, the, the workshop is about um, thinking through our feelings of failure and what it means to, f- to feel like we're failing in academia, especially as Asian Americans and Asian Americanists who are like model minorities, right? Um, what are the stakes of failure? What does it feel and look like to fail? And we started this conversation at the 2019 conference, I, ha- I had a similar session there um, in addition to the adjunct plenary. And it was, I mean, lots of crying. <laughs> uh, I like to also say I make people cry. That's that's what I do in my work. I make cool shit and I make people cry. Um, and I do it because I want us to give ourselves and each other permission to admit that we are unwell. Because you can't address or care for the unwellness if you pretend it's not there if you're being forced to pretend it's not there, if you're not allowed to say that it's there. So how do we sit in our unwellness together? How do we dwell in it? Um, And then from there, create the caring that we need, right? So how to sit in unwellness requires feeling. So then I ask questions I know will trigger feelings. I create structures that um, where people can be vulnerable to feel and to share those feelings. 
Um, I do this a lot in my classroom space, so it's kind of an easy translation for me into workshops and talks. Um, it is a more difficult translation in a academic space like a conference because we really don't want to have feelings there except like graduate students who are crying in their hotel rooms, right? That's the only kind of feeling that is allowed or like drunken dr drunken happy hour debauchery is the other, the other kind of academic uh, feeling that's allowed at a conference. And so I really wanna push through that resistance and create spaces where we are forced to reckon with our feelings. And, and that requires trust and safety and vulnerability. And so I, I, so much of my work is trying to develop um, strategies and tools for creating that. Yeah. I mean, when, when you're talking, it just kind of, even, even the thing about feeling being feminized, like I, I don't even think I realized that until you mm. like really pointed it out that like academia is still such a patriarchal masculinist space where oh, we have to masculine. put on yep. a professional facade and kind of keep our feelings and our vulnerabilities to ourselves. Like, Wow. Like, <laughs> it's, Can it's I ask great. you all a question? Sure. Do you still use the professors in as like a resource for? Lauren can speak to that. Uh, no. No? <laughs> or, well, I think that there's like this whole, and we've talked about it sometimes, like a cottage industry of advice giving, yeah, right, for graduate yeah. school. And so I think that as I've been going through this podcast, I've become more and more skeptical of mm. the industry of that. And I guess I see the professor as in as kind of like the representation mm, yeah. of it, right? And I remember talking with my friends. We were trying to do, uh, we were practicing for a job interviews and we were using the professors in and they have that question about what is your second project? Meaning like when you go and do your job talk, right. you not only have to talk about your dissertation, but you have to talk about what you're going to do after your dissertation. And I remember kind of thinking like, how are we supposed to already have that known? And then my friend said, oh, well, it's because the professors in came up with that question. Now everyone asks that. Oh my god, it's like the self-fulfilling fuckery. <laughs> yeah, what do you yeah. think about the professors in? So the professors in was like all the rage when I was in grad school, right? Like everybody consulted it, everybody read it, uh, people, you know, paid her lots of money, right, for consulting, for looking at our job uh, market materials. And in some ways, it was helpful in that I did this was a world I did not understand. Right? I did not speak the language of academia and job market. And so to have somebody give me the, the, like the cliff notes for that, right? Totally um, like critical for those of us who are marginalized in ways that where we don't understand the kinds of cultural and you know, rules around these things. Totally helpful in that way. But I love you calling it a cottage industry because yes, it's proliferated, right? So it's professors in, but then there are many others too now who help us professionalize um, and teach us the ways. But you also identified how it becomes this like circular logic of uh, they tell us what we have to do to succeed, but then also now everybody expects that's what you have to do to succeed. And then if you don't do it, what does that mean? Does it mean you're like choosing to fail? Like it just becomes a self-fulfillment. So I brought it up in part because um, yes, I am also very skeptical now. I think it reifies a lot of fucked up things actually about academia. But the question of feminization came up uh, for me when I was reading some of those ad advice blog pieces. Um, there was a lot of advice to avoid being overly feminized, 
So like if you talk about your teaching, don't use feeling language. Don't don't be passionate, right? Don't express how much you love teaching because that's feminizing it in a way that makes people dismiss you. And while that observation is true in a masculine world, the advice to do it, right? The advice to avoid feminizing yourself and your presentation is super problematic, right? And so there's like a slippery slope between this is how things work to this is how things should be. And, and this is what you have to do to succeed, right? And then what happens if you don't do that or if you are too divergent from those kinds of norms and expectations? I have all kinds of feelings about all that professionalization stuff. So I actually have a chapter in the book about it. So <laughs> Nice. I mean, hopefully our anxiety around this podcast is hopefully it doesn't contribute to that cottage mm. industry. Like we are, we are trying to be a little bit more kind of critical of using career diversity as like a panacea for all Mm. of the ills of the university. And, you know, hopefully that's what our listeners get from, from our podcast. Yeah. Um, I mean, y'all are asking amazing questions. So I, I (laughs) I am not worried because we do have to share knowledge and share advice. Right. But it's like, how do we do it and why do we do it? And what is the goal of that advice that is being given, um, is it to like be strategic and like steal the university's resources? That's the only goal that I really have ever, right? And so like, that's why I give advice is to figure out how to survive in spaces that don't want your survival and how to be strategic to take resources that you need to do the work that you wanna do and to give back to the community, right? But if the goal is to like make you into an uber professionalized academic, then I'm not interested in that as a project. Well, I know we have to be mindful of your time, but I'm really enjoying this conversation. So I, I don't too. know. I think that that was like such a great, you're kind of like anticipating our questions. It's great. Because um, we were going to ask you about, you know, what advice do you have or what advice do you have for the advice givers? No, no, I'm happy to talk a little more about what advice. I don't actually have good advice, I think, but I I will I will try. Uh, I mean, my, my flippant advice is always like, don't, don't go to grad school. Don't go on the job market. Just don't do any of it. It's awful. Um, But my less flippant response would be, especially for people who are already in grad school, right? You're already stuck. You're already in in the awful mess. How do you get out of it? Um, And how do you get out of it in a way that's least traumatic, right? The least harmed in the process. You're not going to get out of it unharmed. There's just, it's just not possible. But you might be able to get out of it less harmed um, with some advice. And I would say to graduate students that they belong, you belong, um, and that you deserve care and you deserve support for everything that you want to do. And everything in place is going to tell you otherwise, right? Which then spurs you to do all kinds of things that are awful, right? Because then you feel like you have to prove that you belong. You have to prove that you deserve things. Or if you don't get things, you feel that you didn't deserve it, right? And then it also spurs grad students to, like, listen to their, you know, bad advice from their advisors. But if, if, if you can believe that, like, the questions you have, the kind of work you want to do, the projects are worthwhile, whether or not your advisor recognizes it, whether or not the university recognizes it, whether or not grant funding, you know, programs recognize it, um, then maybe you can start thinking 
more expansively about how to do that work beyond the narrow trajectory that those in charge are trying to shove you through. And I would like, that's a conversation I would love to have with graduate students. How do we like do cool shit with the kinds of questions that you have? Um, how do, how do we realize the project you want to do outside of the bounds of like the dissertation and the tenure book, right? The journal article. Um, there are other ways to do the, that work, to ask the questions, to make stuff, to connect. So how do we figure out how to do that? And how do we, again, steal the resources that you have access to, to do it for yourself and not for some like, you know, larger academic, uh, I don't know, uh, agenda. I don't know if that's at all concrete advice. <laughs> that's super helpful. Thank you so much. And I think you serve as a really great role model for people who want to take that sort of alternative relationship to the university, um, but still continue to do your scholarly work and be committed to your scholarly project as well. Yeah, so thank, thank you thank so much. You. I will say, I will say that there are, you know, the realities of financial precarity, is, you know, those are real. And so doing weird work comes with uh, risk. Doing stuff that isn't along that trajectory comes with big risk. So like, I'm only able to do it because I have found other ways to pay the bills, right? So adjuncting now is not how I pay the bills. Once I got fired from Maryland, uh, I could not pay the bills via teaching, right? And I did not want to get into the position of having to scrabble and find classes across like three different universities, right? To put together um, uh, like a barely above minimum wage kind of income. Um, I didn't want to get stuck in that because I wouldn't be able to do the work I wanted to do if I had to do that, if teaching became that for me. So I had to, with my family's help, find other ways to pay the bills so that teaching could remain something of joy and something of intellectual value to me. And that I would have the time and space and spoons to do the creative and critical work that I wanted to do instead of getting burned out on teaching like eight classes uh, a semester, which some of my colleagues do. I have some adjunct colleagues who teach eight fucking classes a semester across three universities to pay the bills. Like that is, and, and that is unconscionable that, that people would let that happen to somebody, right? So, but I understand it. I understand like if you, there are no other options, what the fuck else can you do? So I had to really think structurally about how to support the work I want to do. Um, and part of it is like, I'll get into the nitty gritty. Like I have an Airbnb in my house. <laughs> so my family helped me set up my basement as an Airbnb. So I run an Airbnb um, and that is you know, a decent amount of income that allows me to not have to teach every semester or teach multiple classes. I can teach just one class a semester and I can teach whenever I want to and not, I don't have to. And like, you got to get a side gig, right? And like, that's, that's the reality sometimes. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing. And thank you so much for your time, Mimi. We really appreciated it. Oh, thank you so yeah, much for having you. me. I hope this was helpful. I jabbered a lot. Uh, but <laughs> I hope I said things that are helpful <laughs> to graduate students and meaningful to them. Um, and I'm always, always happy to engage with students on these issues. Well, yeah, thank you. This was a really empowering talk. This made me feel a lot better. I love getting oh, to talk about my some feelings. <laughs> oh, good. Same. There can be good feelings too, not just bad yeah. crying. Good crying. <laughs> 
This podcast was written, produced, and hosted by Lauren Burrell-Cox and June Key, with support from the University of California Humanities Research Institute and the University of Florida Center for the Humanities and the Public Sphere. The cover art was designed by Kathleen Martin and Amy Owen at UF Class Communications. Special thanks to Barbara Mennell, Kelly A. Brown, and David Theo Goldberg for their support and guidance.